I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Welcome to the LRB podcast. I'm Adam Schatz. Uh, It's my pleasure to welcome Pankaj Mishra today. Pankaj is one of the most influential writers on politics and culture at work today and one of the most treasured contributors to the London Review of Books. His 2017 book, The Age of Anger, is among the most incisive analyses we have of the politics of resentment and rage that have swept the globe, bringing to power demagogic leaders in the societies that he knows best, India, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Uh, What's distinguished Pankaj's work and set it apart from the writings of mainstream pundits is that it has grounded the erosion of Anglo-American democracy in the long durée of Western liberal thought and in what might be called a crisis of the political and moral imagination. Uh, The occasion for our conversation today uh, is Pankaj's latest essay in the London Review of Books, a powerful reflection on what the COVID-19 pandemic and the rise of anti-racist protest movements in both the U.S. and the U.K. have revealed about the failing or flailing states of uh, the United States and the UK, and about the comparative strength of countries like Germany, Japan, and South Korea. Uh, Welcome to the LRB podcast, Pankaj. Thank you, Adam. In this essay, you write that the early winners of modern history now appear to be its biggest losers with their delegitimized political systems, grotesquely distorted economies, and shattered social contracts. Uh, what happened? Why have the UK and the US proved so unprepared in the face of the challenges they've faced uh, in the last several years, from populist anger to the COVID-19 pandemic to the challenges of these anti-racist revolts? Well, I suppose one way of answering it would be to say that those easy victories early on in their national existence back in the 19th century, uh, and indeed in the 20th century, did not prepare these two countries for the kinds of adversity that many other countries face, whether occupation, uh, civil war, colonialism, the whole challenge of building states from scratch, and not having faced those challenges, um, having had a pretty easy ride, having created relatively affluent and powerful societies on the basis of uh, imperialism, slave labor, and of course the inherited advantages from those, it turns out that these societies are extremely poorly equipped for something like the pandemic. And mind you, you know, even, even before the pandemic, these countries were struggling uh, to make sense of what was happening to them, both politically and economically, with the rise of uh, the demagogues you just mentioned, and also the rise of East Asia, most prominently 
China, I mean, none of these events have been predicted very accurately or clearly uh, by Anglo-American, by the Anglo-American intelligentsia. So they've been living in a kind of state of shock over the last 20 years, the time in which I started to write and think about these issues. And in a way, the pandemic really has come as a kind of monstrous culmination of a whole lot of problems and, and, and disasters that were already besieging these two societies. You say uh, 20 years ago, are you, are you, I mean, could we go even further back to the, the end of the great post-war expansion and the uh, attack on the welfare state or Thatcher and Reagan? I mean, were these the first signs of the uh, collapse of this order? You're absolutely right about that. You know, you could go back to the 1970s, as many people have, and identify that period of endless crises as really the beginning of the, the, the process we see today reaching its uh, terminus. But I think uh, the reason why I mentioned the last 20 years is, is because it's really in the 2000s that the evidence of failure became so overwhelming. And at the same time, countries around the world were being urged to adopt these completely disastrously failed prescriptions for progress that were being written in, in, in Anglo-America. So that was the weirdest thing for me, that already in the 90s, a lot of people, a lot of politicians, uh, I mean, especially actually, you know, let's not forget from the right, uh, people like uh, Pat Buchanan were starting to talk about just what was happening to many working people in the United States. There were also people from the left in, in the UK and the US. But globalization really did not get into its most frenzied rhetorical mode until the 2000s. So I think the degree of delusion was never as high as it was in the 2000s. Uh, with with this accumulating evidence of failure and disaster behind it. You know, we know what happened in Russia in the 1990s, where this first major global experiment in free marketeering was conducted. And immediately you, you saw how it managed to empower an autocrat. And then, of course, there were other countries, the East Asian crisis, the Latin America obviously had started to have its crisis even earlier, back in the 1980s. And yet none of this seemed to register on uh, the mainstream Anglo-American intelligentsia. So Much of that had to do with, I'm, I'm guessing, with in your analysis, with the complacency and even hubris stoked by the collapse of the Soviet Union and the conclusion drawn by many commentators in the West that somehow the defeat of the Soviet Union meant that the, the Western liberal model had been an unalloyed success that should be spread throughout the globe. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, this strange synergy between journalists, editorialists, newspaper columnists, businessmen and politicians actually really started working brilliantly only after the early 90s. Uh, we, we saw it sort of, you know, slowly forming. At that, until that moment, there was still, you know, quite a bit of what you might call an adversarial oppositional culture, you know, in, in mainstream journalism. But after that, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there seemed to have been a very broad conviction in, uh, in, in the Anglo-American press that actually, okay, we won this battle 
And it turns out that uh, the ruling class was right. And perhaps, you know, we should also be try and be members of the ruling class. And, and that there's no other way, that there's no alternative. There's no alternative. So why not join the winners, as it were? Why keep on, um, you know, harping about these completely failed projects like socialism and communism. I mean, you know, growing up in India, I was uh, witness to an absolutely ferocious backlash against anyone who talked about social justice or redistribution or, or inequality. Uh, we were all, I mean, people talking about these issues were branded, stigmatized as commies, losers, deluded people. And I think in, 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 the, in the West, uh, when I started traveling here in the, in the late 90s, I saw a milder version of this, which became, which became obviously um, much stronger. Why do you think the version in India was so much more extreme? Uh, was it a kind of uh, almost a mimicry of what was going on in the West? I think there were many reasons for that. One was that India had undertaken a very long and um, in the end, a failed experiment in economic self-sufficiency, which many people mistakenly described as socialism because that was a claim made by successive governments that we were working towards socialism. Uh, what actually existed in India was a form of monopoly capitalism, which successfully managed to postpone a, a, a larger role for the state in national development and also kept international competitors at bay. So this was not really the kind of socialism we saw in, in, in many countries, whether in the Soviet Union or in Scandinavia. But anyway, it was described as socialism, and such was the ideological climate after 1989 and 1991 that you could bundle up a whole lot of very many different things, call it socialism, denounce it, marginalize it, ostracize it, or anyone else who was, you know, speaking of things like um, social justice or, or, or poverty or inequality. So in India, you saw a particularly strong reaction to that. It was a sense that, oh, we've been uh, loyal to some failed ideas for far too long, and this is now the moment to embrace American-style capitalism. And this also coincided with a massive ideological shift amongst the Indian intelligentsia, which had started to be trained in Reagan's America, had gone to universities there, had started to join think tanks, Council for Foreign Relations. I mean, these became the new centers of authority and insight for many, many educated Indians. I want to just push back a little bit against the idea that the United States has had a relatively easy ride. Um, certainly that's true for uh, the American state. September 11, of course, was the first time that uh, the states had been attacked uh, inside uh, its borders since Pearl Harbor. But uh, the United States certainly has had no uh, lack of violent uh, internal struggles. There was a civil war in which uh, half a million people uh, perished, and there have been great labor struggles and struggles over the enfranchisement of black Americans. Is, is it fair to say that, that, this, that the States has had a relatively easy ride towards capitalist modernity? Well, definitely an easier ride than many countries, I mean, especially Germany or Japan, than, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the various sort of latecomers to industrial modernity. Um, 
I mean, it's also fair to say that America had its struggles, the main struggle, the Civil War, uh, well before it actually came into its own as a modern industrial power. And that Civil War did not coincide with various other social, economic and, and political struggles. And then you know, I think most importantly, it didn't really damage American ideology, the ideology of private interests, the ideology that actually concealed within itself a distrust of government, a distrust of the state. And then, of course, you know, an expanding frontier. Very few people, very few people around the world had that luxury of having this, these endless lands to conquer all through the, all through the 19th century. And then, of course, markets, resources, territories uh, abroad, once you were a fully, uh, or at least, you know, partially industrialized power, unenabled power. When you compare that to the experiences of countries like uh, Germany or Italy or Japan, to confine ourselves for the moment to just European or advanced Asian societies, they had to do so many things simultaneously, very quickly, while the very menacing shadow of the United States and, and Britain was falling over them. So I think the kind of challenges that other countries faced in their quest for modernization and self-strengthening was simply not of the kind that United States, uh, or for that matter, Britain faced. I mean, of course, there were challenges and of course, there were struggles, but nothing on the same scale as these other countries. And, you know, we haven't really talked about post-colonial Asia and Africa, where things were so bleak at the time of independence. Uh, you had absolutely no ready-made ingredients at all for a state or a kind of functional civil society. So they had to do everything from scratch. So in a sense, one could say that the privilege or luxury of not being a late developer, of having gotten there first, has impaired the critical faculties of the intelligentsia of the US and the UK. They can't see the world for what it is because they haven't uh, experienced in their own history the convulsion and the struggle of what it is to be a late developer. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think this is the kind of provincialization or self-provincializing that happens when you don't take into account other people's history or when you think that your own history, your own very, very contingently arrived success is essentially or should be a model for everyone else and that the forms of politics and economies that you've arrived at should be imitated by everyone else and that's the best way to be in this in this world uh, that is really the kind of delusion bred by absolute success and you know i think you know in a way what we're seeing today are the sort of consequences of not actually taking into account other countries their past their histories, the peculiar challenges they faced, and the way in which they have strengthened themselves over time without thinking at any point that they've made it and now they're secure and now they can preach and prescribe to the rest of the world. I mean, you know, China, for instance, is a international power, but I don't think the Chinese propose to export the Chinese model, they, they haven't, certainly they haven't been saying anything along these lines, that our model is the best way forward for societies that are still developing, because there's obviously a recognition that 
this model uh, is a historically contingent model. Well, in Africa, they're practicing a kind of economic imperialism without ideology. Exactly. I mean, this is this is the sort of pragmatic imperialism that you know we're going to go into these countries, acquire as many resources as we possibly can, give them some concessions, help offer to help them in their own modernization projects, and not actually tell them how to live or how to conduct their societies or how to build their economies, basically do what we really want, and then leave them to their own devices. I wanted to talk to you a bit about defeat, uh, injuries to dignity, because they figured really, I think, pretty centrally in your work and in books like In the Ruins of Empire and The Age of Anger. You've, you've often you know, argued that defeat and decline can be uh, an incitement to critical reflection, which they clearly were in the case of uh, Germany and Japan, uh, as you write in, in, in your most recent London Review essay. But you, you, you argue in that same piece that the shock of the last few years with the uh, rise of Donald Trump and Boris Johnson hasn't really led the intelligentsia in either of these countries to take a deeper look at their own societies, that instead they've sought refuge in a kind of Cold War liberalism uh, without the Soviet Union, uh, a, a sort of nostalgic uh, expression of, of conviction, of longing for this order that no longer exists. I'm thinking of writers like Yasha Munk, whom you uh, wrote about um, in the London Review pretty recently. Why is it that uh, these writers have failed the test? What What is preventing them from taking a, a harder and uh, more serious look at what ails these societies? Well, I mean, I think when we speak of these issues, we tend to assume the life of the mind as something free of professional pressures and imperatives. We think of idealizing this figure quite a bit of the freelance intellectual who pursues um, particular lines of inquiry and, and, and sort of roves over uh, large realms of knowledge and also is capable of profound introspection, especially after defeat and, and humiliation. But I think in many ways, this very idealized picture is false because we know that most intellectuals are actually professionals. They work for specific organizations and institutionals, and much of that thinking is dictated by various pressures that exist on their institutions to produce a certain body of knowledge that can be fitted into whatever the ruling class uh, at the moment desires or what the ruling class is capable of facing about itself. So when you take all those constraints into account, what we are really looking at is not actually intellectual production. It's something that professionals produce simply because that is what they've been asked to do and that's what they can only really do, that's what they're only capable of doing. Whereas the kind of reflection that started to emerge from the experience of national defeat and humiliation that I've been writing about, that I've written about in the past, in the 19th century, in Germany, first of all, uh, the experience of being defeated by Napoleon and being humiliated culturally, which, you know, is a kind of prototype for many other colonized societies, that you're suddenly shocked 
into a recognition of your weakness. And then you start to reflect upon what has happened to you. And now this tradition is renewed over and over again all through the 19th century in Germany, in Japan, most importantly in China, uh, which I wrote about in, in From the Ruins of Empire. Now, when I think about these intellectuals, they are, you know, writers, they are poets, they are novelists, uh, they are philosophers in, in many instances. They are not being told to think in certain ways. They are not inherited any ideologies or particular epistemes. They are kind of, really, they in, in, in the true sense of the word, free thinkers. And they're travelers, they're often living in exile. Uh, they're very much marginal to their societies. Uh, they certainly are not professionals. So to answer your question, I mean, I think they're far more capable of reflecting profoundly on the consequences of defeat, the reasons that led to defeat, and what they should do in order to avoid defeat and strengthen themselves Whereas I think the intellectual industry in its current form seems too obliged to produce a kind of briefing for politicians and decision makers, which makes it really incapable, increasingly incapable of, of free thinking. Perhaps then we should talk a bit about uh, the Harper's letter, oh. which was couched as a, as a defense of individual freedom of expression. But I, I gather you see it more as an expression of corporate professional privilege, if you will. Yes, I think, again, you know, and this is only one instance of a kind of uh, rearguardism, a defensiveness amongst people in very prominent positions in intellectual life in both Britain and the United States, feeling themselves challenged by people who are actually are very capable of the kind of introspection and reflection that is beyond them and increasingly challenging people in these powerful institutional networks and saying to them, look, look at the world you've created. Look at this collapsing world around you. Are you still capable of interpreting it accurately for us? Are you still capable of doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. And these are the questions increasingly being raised, often in very crude, very aggressive ways. And obviously for people who are not accustomed to being challenged, uh, it's deeply insulting, it's deeply offensive to be called to account like that because they are too accustomed to these professional routines of people talking to each other, slapping each other on the back, uh, meeting each other at seminars and conferences and think festivals and, and ideas festivals around the world. It's deeply threatening to them the existence of a younger generation of people who do not belong to these institutional networks and yet have managed to acquire a voice in the public sphere and are increasingly speaking out against some of these intellectual atrocities that we've uh, suffered over the last three decades or so. You know, people making one catastrophic decision and mistake after another, but not being held accountable at all. I mean, look at you know the number of people on that list who supported the war in Iraq and have suffered zero professional consequences as a result of that. So. When people react to something like this, they're not saying that, oh, free speech is no longer a, a, a principle. They're basically 
pointing to not only the hypocrisy, but also this this sort of stubborn belief that many members of the intelligentsia have in their ability to think us out of the situation that we are in. Uh, their failure to concede that they've actually really been pretty incompetent on the whole, if not actually complicit in uh, the various disasters that um, currently besiege us. Interestingly, one of the signatories of the letter was Noam Chomsky. It's probably the only time we will ever see a letter signed both by Noam Chomsky and, and David Frum, which was amusing. But Chomsky was interviewed a couple of days ago about the letter, and he said that he, he had no objection to the defense of, um, of, of free expression against those who sought to limit it. In that sense, he's consistent with the conviction he's always held. But he said he found it very peculiar that he was asked to sign um, a letter about this rather small affair of intellectuals who talk among themselves when the uh, United States and the globe are facing enormous catastrophic uh, problems, ecological, political, etc. Um, he just saw it as, I mean, I think that he found it uh, perplexing that the letter even existed, even as he signed it. And, you know, I think of letters in the past, which have been published by groups of intellectuals, such as the uh, Manifesto of the 121, and, and this was a letter that was published in France at the time of the Algerian War, supporting the right of uh, deserters and, uh, and opposing French colonialism in Algeria. Letters like that that addressed problems of really paramount national significance. And it, it seems striking to me that the one collective petition that had been circulated and published in the States, really since Trump came to power, had to do with the freedoms of a relatively small group of people. And that took almost no account of some of the uh, kind of larger national crises, except to uh, name check them in a sort of dutiful fashion. No, absolutely. I mean, I think it also did not mention the fact that free speech for most people around the planet has actually never been freer. And I speak from personal experience here. I mean, when I started to write back in the late 90s, and especially after the um, attack on the Twin Towers and during the preparations for war on Iraq, I can tell you how difficult it was to write anything remotely critical about American decision-making in the New York Times, or even indeed in the New York Review of Books. The number of editorial back and forths I had back then about small, really relatively trivial issues, about small matters of phrasing, it was so time-consuming and so frustrating. And what it pointed to uh, was, you know, a, a kind of censorship regime, which worked very, very subtly. But nevertheless, it was there. So this idea that at one point, there were no restrictions at all on what you could say in public, uh, there were no restrictions on the kind of things you could debate in public. For instance, you know, it was really impossible, very, very difficult to make the case that actually the Americans should speak to the Taliban. This was soon after 9-11. And that eventually they'll have to speak to them anyway, because they do uh, they do happen to be the most powerful outfit in that country. And they won't just fade away, they won't just disappear because the Americans have declared war on Afghanistan. And I know there are other people, other writers in Pakistan, 
elsewhere famous novelist today who would attest to a similar experience of censorship. So I cannot recognize this picture uh, where expression was once unrestricted. You could debate and talk about any number of things and suddenly it's become constricted. The fact that it was always constricted. And what has changed is that people who back then were speaking very freely about the necessity of invading Iraq and defeating Saddam Hussein find that it's a lot more difficult to say those same kind of things again. That is what has changed. Right, or consider what happened to Susan Sontag after she published her thoughts about 9-11. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, she was famous enough, powerful enough to... To withstand it. With, exactly, yeah, to withstand it. Uh, but many people were simply crushed. I mean, you know, we know about the Dixie Chicks, but there were so many people, and I personally know of so many people who were silenced or, or you know, whose articles were not entertained or whose articles were accepted but not published. So this romanticized picture of, uh, you know, this, this wonderfully vibrant uh, public sphere that has now been uh, overtaken by exponents of cancel culture is, is uh, simply a fantasy. That said, would you say that, that a defense of freedom of, of speech has to be paired or could be, should be paired with a larger sense or a, a broader assertion of the kind of society that we want to create? In other words, isn't there a danger that if we speak too blithely about infringements on intellectual freedom, we're, we're undermining the project for a society that is both equal and free. No, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, if the letter had come to me without this very um, suspicious phrasing, and it had been about free speech, had it come to me at any other time, I would have seriously contemplated signing it because we know that intellectual freedom is under intense assault, not just in the United States. I mean, you know, I see it in India all the time, you know, just before I started this podcast, I was reading this article Arundhati Roy wrote today to a friend of hers who's in prison. Most of her friends are in prison right now. Writers, intellectuals, literary critics, poets in prison. So nobody really needs to speak about intellectual freedom in abstract terms these days. It is under in serious danger right now. So, of course, the, 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 the principle has to be upheld at, um, at all moments. But I think we should also detect elite defensiveness and, and, and posturing in uh, something like the uh, Harper's Letter and feel free to call it out. Pankaj, I want to return for a moment to uh, your treatment of Germany and Japan in your London Review essay. You depict Germany and Japan as attractive examples of, of what you call a social state, attractive at least compared to the abject failure of the Anglo-American model today. Now, in, in the work of, of liberal German historians, Germany has often been treated as a kind of cautionary tale, you know, the, the country that had taken the special path, the Zonderweg, this, this path that had led it to fascism and the final solution. In Japan, you have, you know, the Meiji Restoration, also this special path that culminates in, in Japanese imperialism. So it's, this history isn't left out of the essay, but you place much more emphasis on what we can learn uh, from, from these histories. Well, 
Yes, I mean, I think uh, those particular theses of the special path, they were uh, obviously very prominent Cold War narratives of Germany and Japan. And in both cases, German historians and Japanese historians who emphasized the singular nature of the fascisms and militarisms nurtured in their respective countries, those narratives were, were, were emphasized and held up. But there has been a lot of different contributions to that uh, scholarship in uh, recent decades. And I think what is being perceived now far more clearly is the way in which German imperialism, German nationalism, Japanese militarism were conceived and how they emerged in tandem with US imperialism and British imperialism. So instead of, you know, isolating these particular countries and seeing them as instances of countries gone peculiarly bad with their authoritarian political structures and their expansionist economies and their crazed uh, militarists, this is now seen as part of a larger historical pattern in which these countries were, or for, they felt very strongly the need to modernize, industrialize, create a strong state with not many individual liberties. Uh, mind you, that there weren't that many individual liberties available in Britain and the United States around the same time. And, and, and certainly not for large, large portions of those populations either, for women or black people. God, no, none, none for minorities whatsoever. So there was this attempt to create strong political, economic organisms really for this very basic task of uh, survival. Otherwise, the danger was, and the same danger existed for countries like India and elsewhere, that if you don't modernize, if you don't develop fast enough, you'll be swallowed up, uh, you'll cease to exist, you'll lose your independence. These were the slogans, and, and, and they were right. People who were too weak, societies that were too weak, simply succumbed and sort of, you know, suffered, in many cases, deindustrialization. So I think when you think of these histories, when you bring them into a conversation with the histories of uh, United States and, and Britain, some other patterns start to emerge and suddenly they no longer seem exceptional. I mean, you know, simple facts like German liberals, um, not just the Nazis, looking at uh, racist legislation in the United States, seeking inspiration for that. Hitler, of course, a great admirer of US anti-immigration laws and, of course, uh, a great admirer of the British Empire and wishing to recreate it in uh, Europe itself. And, you know, and these were insights being reached by not just Hannah Arendt but, or Simone Weil, but you know, people like Nehru and Gandhi were saying very bluntly at the time that uh, Nazism... And Amy Césaire as well. Amy Césaire, exactly. The Nazism is the twin brother of uh, British imperialism. And you know, one of them makes the mistake of doing in, in Europe uh, what really should ideally be done in Asia and Africa. So I think these Cold War narratives of how Germany went wrong or how Japan went wrong are being gradually superseded. But, you know, at the same time, I think because we are so accustomed to a certain kind of Cold War thinking about these issues, that when you speak 
of a different kind of historical model, uh, people still assume that you are speaking about its virtues, its benefits, and how they should be closely imitated, that you're either on this side or on that side. We fail, we fail sort of to take this you know, broader look, and we all, you know, consistently fail during the Cold War to realize that, look, all of this, all of this is a product of particular set of historical circumstances, and that, you know, you can no more recreate the Japanese model in India than you can recreate the American model in, in India, and that these are, you know, outcomes of particular histories, and that uh, whatever is good and bad in them is all bound up together. You know, I think what's really striking and rich about your perspective on these societies is that, at least as I see it, it's it's very, it's infused with your own understanding of the Indian experience and of the experience of colonized countries, that you're kind of looking, you're looking at Germany and Japan through 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 the prism of the global south, in a sense. Yes, and I think, you know, when you do that, and obviously people have been doing this for decades, you really do come to have a tragic vision of modern history. And I think it's no longer possible for you to dwell in this Whiggish or um, the Fukuyamaist or the Thomas Friedmanite version of history in which um, all nations that adopt Anglo-American prescriptions for the end of history, for the arrival of global capitalism, will eventually be happy and content, you just realize what a shallow, historically impoverished notion of history that is, of, of the world that is, uh, because you simply haven't taken into account all these other many different histories. And those histories are primarily about loss it's about defeat it's about humiliation and it's 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 really in many ways uh, the account of a account of a tragedy i mean i think you know walter benjamin's words about every advance of civilization being also a step backward into barbarism it's never been truer for 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 the histories of the late kama notions so i think you know sort of growing up in in india uh, or indeed growing up in you know so many other post-colonial societies, you were very aware of just how difficult it was for many of us to aspire to this condition that we describe as modernity, how, 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 how tragic were the choices that people had to make, sacrificing individual liberties, sacrificing entire peoples. I mean, look at China. The whole history of China is a history of a tragedy the immense human costs, the immense human sacrifices that have gone into making China a powerful nation today, we never really conceive of the history of the United States in these ways as a, as a history of a tragedy. But we should, because that is, that is the more accurate way of looking at it. You know, one tragedy that you are intimately familiar with is the tragedy of, of Modi's India today. I mean, here you have a, a country that in rebelling against uh, Western rule had you know, adopted some a n- number of the West's uh, political traditions. And today there's been a kind of indigenous turn or a, a kind of native fascism a revolt against uh, the model that had been established by uh, Nehru and the country's founders. Why do you think so many Indians today support Modi? Is there something we don't understand about that, the the degree of enthusiasm that he seems to have inspired? I suppose, I mean, you know, to go back to our earlier conversation about defeat and resentment and humiliation, 
I think one of the most profound books that I've read on this subject, you, you know it well, is the Fritz Stern book about, about Germany. This whole notion of cultural despair is, very, is a very powerful one in understanding, I think, just how both individual and collective psychologies work in a modernizing society like India's, where despite long and sustained efforts, uh, immense sacrifices, immense patience, a lot of waiting for modernity to arrive, and it doesn't arrive, uh, it's continuously postponed. As, as someone put it, you're you know, condemned to spending all your time in the waiting room of history. You never really act as in it. And then along comes a figure who promises to deliver it, very soon, who promises to release you from humiliation. And, you know, as I'm speaking, I could also be speaking of Adolf Hitler. Um, I could be speaking of any number of demagogues that emerged in societies that had found the whole project of modernization to be an incredibly traumatic experience and were therefore very vulnerable to the demagogue who promises to expedite things. Uh, who promises to restore their pride. And, you know, quite apart from economic explanations and, and materialist explanations, I think this has really been the very the most important factor in making so many Indians vulnerable to, you know, what is clearly an uh, incompetent man, a dangerous man, a megalomaniac, and especially, you know, also a figure who has been implicated in, in monstrous crimes in the past, possibly complicit in, in them. And at the same time, he was, um, he was elected, not just once, but twice. So I think in a way, the frustrations and shattered hopes that helped elect Modi in India are easier to understand than why so many Germans became obsessed with, you know, an Austrian with a funny moustache. After all, Germany was a very advanced, uh, largely literate, very cultured society when it succumbed to Nazism. But let's not ever, ever underestimate that um, power of ressentiment and feelings of defeat, of impotence and wounded pride that uh, fester amongst people who have been promised far too much by modernity and yet don't seem to be able to Get to them. And of course, he, uh, Modi also identified uh, an enemy, an internal enemy. Oh, absolutely. That was uh, a very crucial element in his success. You know, someone, a figure or a community on which people could unload their deepest frustrations who they could easily scapegoat. I mean, again, you know, we've seen this again and again. Well, we see it in the States today. Exactly. But the peculiar thing about the ressentiment in the United States among some Trump's hardcore white supporters is that they can hardly be described as the, the white wretched of the earth. In fact, some of them are a little more comfortable than other people in American society. They're not suffering profoundly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that ressentiment can be felt at any different level of a given society. In India, too, uh, the most vocal, the most aggressive defenders and supporters of Modi are people in the upper middle class. They're not poor young men, I mean, who are simply voting for him because he promises them jobs. They don't really have a kind of ideological commitment to Modi. In fact, they are the people most likely to vote against him in the next election. 
but it's the uh, middle classes, the educated middle classes, that feel that their status is being endangered, that they might be losing some of their benefits, and I, you know, especially the upper castes, they are the ones trying to hold on to their what they think is their declining power and their diminished status, and one reason why they've lined up uh, behind Modi. So. I don't think it's the it's the weak, it's the poorest or the weakest in any society who are most vulnerable to Rizantima. It's people who already have a lot of status and are in danger of losing it. In the States, um, we've seen a different kind of anger coming to the surface and finding expression since the murder of George Floyd. And their anger has lent itself to a very different kind of politics, politics of revolt, uh, potentially of social transformation. Why is it that some forms of political anger lead in the direction of demagoguery, violence, thuggery, etc., and and others can potentially create new possibilities for reimagining society among more democratic lines? Well, let's hope that is true. I mean, I feel obviously very encouraged, thrilled, by the uh, uprisings in the United States. the uh, I think it is accurate to call them uprisings. But I don't know whether they would actually lead to um, a genuine transformation. I mean, I think, I don't know. Um, you're probably more optimistic than I am, but I feel that the um, forces of the discredited, yeah, or the old regime are still pretty strong and there are many ways in which uh, these protests can be diffused, tamed, incorporated. And I think, you know, after the first month or so, the way in which BLM has been appropriated by a wide range of uh, social movements and forces and and, and and sort of, you know, turned into... A, Reduced to sloganeering and, and symbolic symbolic forms of politics. Yeah, I mean, I think we have won far too many symbolic victories of this kind in the past to not be wary of them and not to suspect that actually this might be the only thing we'll get out of this and that uh, true transformation might yet again be postponed. So hopeful though I am, you know, and obviously there, there has been a shift in dynamics in the sense of Biden obviously adopting a far more social democratic outlook overnight, if not a socialist outlook, um, and promising, you know, at least a bare minimum of social justice in his um, in his campaign manifesto. The people who are supporting him today, who are likely to form part of the Biden administration, are, let's face it, I mean, the people who created the opening for Trump. So I, I, I seriously doubt whether there's going to be a period of radical transformation in in uh, in American society over the next four years, even if even if Biden wins, maybe that's maybe that's too bleak, but or pessimistic. But I've just been too, um, I suppose, traumatized by chastened by reality in the past. Yes, I mean, especially I think uh, the Obama hoax um, that was a really cruel um, cruel con on many people. I wasn't really um, convinced by it, but still there was a part of me that thought, my goodness, you know, a black man in the White House 
president of the United States, surely something major will happen. Uh, well, actually, things got much worse. If Biden is elected, how could the the American role in the world be re-envisioned? I've noticed that the reaction to America's retreat under Trump has been pretty paradoxical. On the, on the one hand, there's been, of course, horror and revulsion. And I think a growing sense that the United States has removed itself from consideration as the quote unquote leader of the free world. And, and, and that's, that's probably a good thing. At the same time, my sense is that in, in many countries, even those countries that have very profound grievances uh, against the United States, there's anxiety about the fact that America has, has shown itself to be so rudderless, um, so incompetent, and so dangerous. How could American power be re-envisioned by a new administration? Well, I think the most important thing uh, starting January 2021 would be pressure from the streets and the movement that came into being so soon after the uh, execution of George Floyd, if that can be sustained, even to a somewhat diminished degree, obviously it's impossible to have that many people protesting all the time. What happened with Obama was that something resembling a social movement did actually put him in the White House. But after that, the movement receded. Obama obviously felt no need for it. He had his friends from Wall Street and from Harvard and elsewhere advising him what to do. So he could dispense with that enormous reservoir of goodwill and energy, youthful energy, that uh, he himself had helped create. Uh, Biden might do the same, but then I think, you know, right now the very cautious and pragmatic support extended to him by people who are supporting BLM, who are part of BLM, simply because, you know, everyone wants to get rid of Trump. That support should not be taken for granted by Biden. And if it is, then I think that that movement should become essentially a massive source of criticism, of protest against the Biden administration. And the figures who are now part of that movement should continue, should, should maintain their critical perspective on, on Biden rather than, you know, again, engaged in the kind of fan fiction that many writers, many journalists, many pundits did after Obama came to power in, in 2008. I think that's the only way in which these larger questions can be settled and this new role uh, for American power in the world can be envisioned because, you know, you know we, 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 we see what is happening today with the Susan Rices and the Samantha Powers already applying openly, publicly for roles in the Biden administration. We all can already see the think tanks, the gears are in motion uh, the briefing papers and the and the and the sort of reports are being prepared on various parts of the world. All various applications for uh, some kind of position of influence. Uh, so how can we imagine that things will change until there is real pressure on this on this sort of official status quo on the blob, as it were, from outside, from elsewhere? Pankaj, it has been uh, a great pleasure um, having you on the LRB podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Adam. And you can read Pankaj Mishra's piece in the current issue of the London Review of Books, which is online now.